You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning. That was good. That was good. We're welcome to Kingsway. We're really glad you're here. If you're visiting with us, welcome, welcome. And if you're watching at home online, maybe now or perhaps down the road, we're really glad you're tuning in today. My name is Matt Nickerson. I'm lead pastor at Kingsway. And this is the last Sunday in this series called This I Know. The whole idea of this series is we wanted to do something about what we call apologetics. Apologetics is making like a reasoned argument. Like what are the reasons to believe in God? What are the reasons to believe in Jesus. And so today, to close out this series, I've invited a friend of mine. His name is Brett Siebold. And in just a minute, we're gonna give him a really, really, really warm Kingsway welcome. I've invited him to come. And here is the nutshell. I want him to give you some confidence that what you have heard about Jesus is actually true. Now, if you like to watch the History Channel, if you love to read Time Magazine, especially around Easter time, they will tell you things. There are rumors out there about whether or not you can trust the Bible. But what you will find if you actually study this stuff is the Bible is the most trustworthy document in the history of the world. You can have confidence that it is authentic. And today, Brett is going to walk you through a very logical and heady reason, starting from the beginning, to trust that what you have been told wasn't fabricated hundreds of years ago or hundreds of years after Jesus, It was actually the original message that Jesus died, rose from the dead, and will return. Now, with that being said, I want to encourage you to think of this as God tells us, or Jesus tells us, love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's going to be a heady kind of message, lots of information. There's going to be some graphics early on you won't be able to read. He'll acknowledge that. Go back later, dig in, take a look, and now what we're going to do is let God come and speak to our hearts and encourage our faith. Let's give Brett a nice, warm Kingsway welcome. Thank you all very much for having me. If we're asking ourselves the question, can we trust the New Testament? Is it historically reliable? We actually have to ask two questions. Number one, how did these 27 books come to make up our New Testament? How did they make the cut? How did they get canonized? And secondly, what is the earliest information that we have about Jesus Christ? Dear friends, I'd like to journey with you to the year A.D. 70, a year of great significance in the lives of the first century Jews and the New Testament church. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by Roman general Titus and his army. Engraved in Roman stone, actually, in the Arch of Titus, if you walk in Rome from the uh, Colosseum, the Roman Colosseum, up to the old Roman Forum, you'll see this engraved on the Arch of Titus, you'll pass right under it and you can see the spoils of war there. You actually can make out a Jewish menorah, uh, the spoils of war that Titus brought back to Rome. The historian Josephus describes this event in detail in his work on the Jewish wars, particularly uh, book six, if you wanna read further. And we have three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who record Jesus prophesying this event during his life and ministry. We'll return to this in just a few minutes. But first I wanna set course for another date uh, a few centuries later, namely 397 AD in Carthage, North Africa, modern day Tunisia. Here the Council of Carthage will um, officially ratify the um, 
the New Testament canon as we know it, all 27 books, and it will be represented, uh, representative of church leaders from all across the Christian world at this time. Now, this wasn't the first time that this exact collection of 27 books appeared. As it mirrored the canon of the Carthage or the Council of Hippo in 393 and the private list of Athanasius in 367, as well as overlapping with many other uh, local and earlier private canons and collections, as we see in this chart here by uh, Norman Geisler's book, From God to Us. Skeptics of Christianity often exploit this seemingly late date. Now, I know there's a lot of information on this chart. I encourage you, come back and check this out. Um, this will be made available to you. But what we have basically at the top are early church fathers and different councils uh, going across the top in their dates. And going down the left here, we have the 27 books of the New Testament. And so you can see which books the um, particular early church fathers and canons and councils cited, questioned, quoted, or didn't quote. But I want us to notice the early consensus on the authority of the four gospels. And we shouldn't let the blank spots on this chart mislead us. The question marks, and there are only a few, represent the disputed books by particular individuals, but it's not the gospels, it's not the book of Acts, it's not uh, Paul's letters. A blank spot simply indicates that the book was not mentioned. So we might imagine, imagine we had a sort of a pen pal relationship and we're writing back and forth and we like to quote scripture in our, in our, our letter relationship. Well, I might not quote every one of all 66 of the bi uh, bi books of the Bible, but it doesn't therefore follow that I don't believe that those books are authoritative. The early church fathers didn't quote everything, but they did quote a lot, as we'll see here in a bit. Most of the blank spots are very early on, and they likely reflect the fact that the New Testament books were just beginning to circulate, as well as the role of oral tradition in the early church. We're gonna talk a lot about oral tradition. Believe it or not, people in the past, they didn't always have books, and they had to, they had to learn by hearing things and memorizing things. But these four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they represent the Jesus we know, the Jesus we follow, and the Jesus we worship, faithfully passed down from the first century apostles. Now let's talk about heretics in the early church for a moment. Those who gave a different version of Jesus. The early church father, Irenaeus of Lyon, in the mid to, second, late, mid to late second century in southern France, or southern Gaul, as they said back then, he said to the Gnostic heretic, Valentinus, he said this, you have no predecessor. In other words, Valentinus, your Gnostic views of Jesus and the Bible, they appear as if out of nowhere. They do not trace back to the apostles and to the prophets. We might think of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, where we're told of God's household, that is the church, the body of Christ, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We've got the prophets and the apostles as the foundation with Jesus Christ as a cornerstone. 
Or consider Marcion of Sinope, another heretic during the first half of the second century in Asia Minor and in Rome. He was a dualist, a ditheist, and what that means is he contrasted the heavenly father, the God of love of the New Testament, with the allegedly um, uh, mean, um, angry, vengeful uh, God of the Old Testament, or Demiurge. So he thought these are two different gods. And he also held a view known as docetism, which is the idea that Jesus wasn't fully human. Rather, he merely just appeared in the flesh and just sort of floated around as an apparition. Marcion was perhaps the first to delineate a list of the New Testament scriptures, naturally choosing the books that he thought he could twist and use to accommodate his, his false beliefs. And he limited it to just 10 of Paul's letters and a, an edited or a mutilated version of Luke's gospel. Marcion was widely rejected, both in Asia Minor by Polycarp and Northern Africa by Tertullian, and in France by Irenaeus, who we just mentioned, meaning that Marcion's teachings were rejected in both the Greek-speaking world and the Latin-speaking world. All of this despite the fact that Marcion was wealthy. He had lots of money. He had made a great contribution, I believe, to the church at Rome, letting us know something about the character of the second century church, namely that they prioritized truth over worldly riches and their Jewish concept of God over pagan polytheism. And it's as if these early Gnostic versions of Jesus and Christianity sort of forced Orthodox believers to buckle down and explain which texts were and were not canonical, which ones did and did not belong in our New Testaments, as well as correctly interpreting the intended meaning of the biblical authors. In fact, if you want to dig into this a little deeper, I highly recommend a book by a man named Peter Williams entitled, Can We Trust the Gospels? It's a very short read, about 140 pages, excellent, excellent defense of the Gospels. Two additional facts from the second century which strengthen our confidence in the list, this list of the 27 books. A guy by the name of Tatian is going to compose a work known as the Diatessaron, which means in Latin, through four. And it was sort of a harmony of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, showing us that the church of the second century already recognized those four as a unit, as, as a singularity. And Tertullian, whom we already mentioned, reported that the New Testament letters were still in their respective churches to his day, down to his day, about 150 years after Jesus. Now, some try to reduce this Council of Carthage in 397 to merely a human vote. vote. They say, oh, the, they just voted and chose which books they wanted to, didn't really have anything to do with which ones were reliable or giving us the true Jesus. Now, different people do this for different reasons. Some will say it, it, they will reduce this to a human vote to uphold the ecclesiastical authority of the medieval church. They want to say that the later church is on equal authoritative footing as the apostles. And therefore they say, well, the church made the Bible. Some want to sell popular novels based on conspiracy theories, like Dan Brown in his book, The Da Vinci Code, came out about two decades ago. Let's be honest, conspiracy, conspiracy, uh, conspiracy theories of political corruption, they sell. They do. 
It's, it's fun to read about things like that. And our Muslim apologist friends, they, they make this argument that it was merely a human vote to uphold the prophet-only view of Jesus. They often argue that it was the later church councils which elevated Jesus to his divine status. Therefore, we're not only asking, how did these 27 books get into the New Testament, make the cut, but also, what is the earliest information that we have about Jesus? Now, friends, we need to talk about oral tradition. As I mentioned, in the first century church, many people learned and remembered the teachings of Jesus from the apostles based on, on hearing it and, and memorizing it. And so in the, in the first century church, there's, there's this dependence upon oral teaching, and that's going to eventually shift to a dependence upon the written text. You and I might struggle to imagine what that might have been like because we've always know, depended upon the written text, but I'll try. Imagine you were born sometime before AD 70. You're a second-generation disciple of Christ, and you've, you have no written copy of the New Testament of your own. I mean, I mean, how could you? Being that some of the books and letters, they hadn't even been written yet. And when they were composed, they were addressed to specific audiences at specific locations. We've got to remember, the New Testament wasn't written all at one space in one time. They were letters and gospels going to different locations, different recipients. And, and so you have no copy of your own. How could you? They were, they were spread all over the place. They weren't at one place. Some of, them, some of the books hadn't been written. But your local church has access to the Old Testament. And you're familiar with the apostles' teachings. Like Paul, as he wrote to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, he says this. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught whether by, here it is, word of mouth or by letter from us. So they were focused on the traditions from the apostles, the apostles' teachings, and whether it was by word of mouth or by letter, it didn't matter because in Paul's eyes, they were both of equal authority. So you don't possess your own personal complete New Testament, but that's okay because in the worst case scenario, you've had the gospel and the entire apostles' teachings, essentially encapsulating the life and teachings of Jesus Christ, presented to you, ingrained in your mind, written on your heart. You're in a local congregation that devotes itself regularly to the apostles' teachings. Local elders have been established in your congregation who are particularly grounded in the apostles' teachings. And you've likely also heard a letter or two, perhaps by Paul or Peter or maybe James or Jude or Hebrews, read publicly. You've also, you're also aware that some of the disciples and their closest associates have begun writing down the most prominent teachings and experiences with Jesus in gospel form. But this oral way of teaching, by hearing things and memorizing it, it's not going to die out right away. It's not going to die out immediately. So even a guy named Papias in the early second century could safely and understandably claim, listen to what he says here, friends. If then anyone who came who had been a follower of the elders, I questioned him in regard to the words of the elders. What Andrew or what Peter said or what was said by Philip or by Thomas 
or by James or by John or by Matthew or by any other of the disciples of the Lord. And what things Aristion, the presbyter John, and the disciples of the Lord say, for I did not think, here it is, for I did not think that what was to be gotten from books would profit me as much as what came from the living and abiding voice. You see that dependence upon the spoken word? So writing in the earliest years of the second century, Papias who was likely connected to John the Apostle and at most a generation removed from the other apostles, he enjoyed the luxury of both reading the New Testament texts and hearing the juicy details between the lines and behind the scenes. However, as time moved on and generations passed, that living voice of the apostles began to fade away causing a noticeable shift towards dependence upon the written text. And the written text became more important, and therefore the early church fathers began to quote the written text, the New Testament, and quote they did some 36,000 times. In fact, dear friends, if we didn't have any of the ancient Greek manuscripts for the New Testament, and we have almost 6,000 ancient Greek manuscripts, if we didn't have any of them, we could construct, we could reconstruct the New Testament from the quotes of the early church fathers alone. That's how much evidence there is for the New Testament in the ancient world. Listen to this quote from the late Norman Geisler. Since Christianity was an international religion from the beginning, there was no tightly knit prophetic community which received all inspired books and collected them in one place. Local and somewhat complete collections were made from the very beginning, but there is no evidence of a central and official clearinghouse for inspired writings. Within about 200 years after the first century, nearly every verse of the New Testament was cited in one or more of the over 36,000 citations by the fathers. Friends, this is very strong evidence for the authority of the New Testament prior to its official universal canonization in 397 AD. Now you might be thinking, well, what were the, what were the qualifications for getting a book into the New Testament? There were three main ones that I, I'll share with you. The most important one was this. Was the book apostolic? Was it from an apostle or one of his associates, close associates? Secondly, was it recognized as orthodox uh, down through the centuries by many churches? And thirdly, did it have sort of an internal authority or claim? Did the book itself sort of presume to belong in the New Testament. We might also point out that we have early complete New Testament codices either dating from the time around the Council of Carthage or, either, or even predating it. For example, Textus Sinaiticus. Um, it's a complete New Testament from St. Catherine's Monastery about 350 AD, which is at the, at the base of what many believe is Mount Sinai, that's therefore Sinaiticus. But notice its date, 350, that's 40 to 50 years prior to the council at Carthage. We have Textus Vaticanus from the Vatican. Um, near, it's a nearly complete New Testament in Rome from about the same time, 350 AD. 
and it's only missing the pastoral epistles and Philemon. We also have Alexandrinus from Alexandria, a complete New Testament from about 400 to 450 AD. Notice, complete New Testaments on different locations, either prior to or around the time of the, can of the official ratification of the canon. Now, friends, there is an apologetic, that is a good reasoned uh, defense, there's a good apologetic advantage for the late ratification of the canon. And here's what it is. The ratification of the canon and how it comes about mirrors exactly what the history tells us it should. There was a freedom that was enabled through the legalization of Christianity by Constantine in 313 AD when he gave the Edict of Milan. Persecution of Christians had subsided somewhat, and we might debate whether or not this is positive or negative, because as many of us have probably heard, the church that's often persecuted is also the church that often grows. But it actually here, this, this late ratification of the canon is going to undermine the corruption argument suggest, suggested by our skeptical friends from, because here's why, from the inception of Christianity in the first century, there were 27 books of the New Testament from various apostolic authors, and remember, they were on at different locations. These books were not written in the same place to the same recipients. Now, our skeptic friends imagine councils like Carthage corrupting the true Jesus, getting all of the books together and sort of making up a new Jesus and then redistributing them back out to the churches without any trace of their corruption. Dear friends, this is a historical impossibility because not only the originals, but the copies, these books were copied successfully and many times, they never existed at one place and one time for somebody to pull this off. So the late universal ratification of the New Testament canon cannot undermine the internal evidence for the authority of the New Testament scriptures. It cannot undermine the historical fact that these books and all their copies never existed at one place at one time for some council to pull off such a grand conspiracy. But we might also ask the question, because we mentioned the internal, internal claim of these books to belong in the canon, can we use scripture to determine what scripture is. Now you might be thinking, uh, Brett, that's sort of a circular uh, argument there, but allow me to make a presuppositional if-then argument. Think of it this way. If the New Testament is the inspired written word of God, no other standard could judge over it. In fact, Michael, Michael Kruger backs me up here. He says, after all, if the canon bears the very authority of God, to what other standard could it appeal to justify it? It's interesting, when we, when we sort of zoom up to about 30,000 feet with our drones and look down on the New Testament as a whole, we find an intertextual web of these books supporting each other. And I'll just give you five or six examples here. To answer the question, can we use scripture to determine what scripture is? Well, the scripture does that. For example, 1 Timothy 5.8, Paul quotes Luke 10.7, and the phrase is, the worker is worth 
his wages, and guess what he calls it? Scripture. 2 Peter 3.16 refers to a plurality uh, of Paul's letters, and Peter associates them with the rest of the scriptures. In Acts chapter 15, very early on in the church, we see the church at Jerusalem writing a letter to the church at Antioch. So they were already writing letters very early on, and that tells us that when the church was at different locations, they still have a sense of unity, of being one body. Colossians 4.16, the believers at Colossae and Laodicea were to swap letters and read them, respectively, leading some people to imagine sort of a a lost letter to the Colossians. However, many scholars believe it's maybe Ephesians or something else, and it's just referred to as the letter to the Colossians there. We don't know for sure. One of my favorite passages is in 2 Timothy 4, 11 through 13. Paul is writing one of his final letters to Timothy, um, and one of his final letters at all, and he refers to Luke's presence. In fact, he says something to the effect that only Luke is with me. Now, we've got to, we, I know I'm reading between the lines here, but, but, but bear with me here. Is Paul writing to Timothy with Luke in the background while Luke is doing his research? Because when Paul writes Timothy, he mentions Luke is there with him, and then one of the next things he says, oh, and when you come, can you bring my parchments and my scrolls? I wonder if Luke wasn't, didn't say, hey, hey, uh, don't forget to uh, tell Timothy to bring those other documents to have, you have. I need them for my research. We don't know for sure, but it's a good plausible location for Luke to be doing his research. And finally, Luke 24, 27 and verse 44, it's a story with Jesus on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples. Jesus cites in verse 27 and verse 44, he refers to the two-part and the three-part division of the Old Testament. So that's like the law and the prophets and the writings. And he interprets the Old Testament's entirety as finding its fulfillment in him. So we see sort of an intertextual web where these books are referring to each other and say, hey, like you belong and you belong and this this is one of the reasons why we can be confident that they belong in the canon. Now, so we've talked about why these books get into the canon. We need to address our second question as we wrap this up, namely, what is the earliest information that we have about Jesus? Remember 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Paul told the Thessalonians, whether by word of mouth or by letter, hold to those traditions of the apostles. Now, skeptics like to date the Gospels after that date, AD 70. So if you would imagine with me, I'm right here at AD 70, okay? Here's afterwards, and here's prior to AD 70. Skeptics like to date the Gospels after AD 70, because they cannot, their philosophical naturalism does not allow them to have Jesus in three of the uh, four gospels prophesying the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem, which Jesus clearly does. And so they say, well, Jesus couldn't have possibly prophesied that, so we have to date him after 70. And so that's why they date him after 70, one of the main reasons. Dear friends, let me tell you this. 
Even if the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are written maybe in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, by ancient standards, this is still very early material. A Gospel written 40, 50, 60 years after an event in the ancient world, when compared to other ancient literature, that is very early. But let's see, let's put that presupposition to the test. Let's see if we can maybe find some earlier information about Jesus. Many scholars think that Mark wrote his gospel first, but the early church held a tradition led by Papias that Matthew wrote first. But what is certain is that Luke did not write first, and pretty much everyone agrees that John wrote later that he lived quite, uh, quite long. In fact, that's why somebody like Papias probably knew him in the late part, latter part of the first century. So Matthew and or Mark wrote first, Luke writes second. But here's the thing, and we know this from Luke 1.1 because Luke refers to others who have taken it upon themselves to draw up accounts, right? But Luke wrote another book, namely the book of Acts. We know this because Acts picks up where Luke left off. It's, it's clearly that Luke wrote both of them. And here's the thing. Luke concludes Acts, again, we're here at 8070. Luke concludes Acts with Paul, his main character, along with Peter, but Paul, in this case, still alive under house arrest in Rome. But here's the thing, and if you've read the book of Acts, I highly recommend it if you haven't, you know that Luke, Luke doesn't mind telling us when people die, when Christians were martyred, when they were killed. Think of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 or the Apostle James in Acts chapter 12, or Ananias and Sapphira, I think it's Acts chapter five. And there's an entire litany of voices from the first through the fifth centuries that are convinced that Paul was beheaded in Rome under Nero, whose reign ended in 68 AD, two years prior to 70. Now, if you've been following along, you see the problem. We have Luke, who does not mind telling us about Christians who get martyred, and you mean to tell me that he's gonna end his book with Paul still alive, his main character under house arrest after he's already been beheaded by Nero? Isn't it much easier to suppose that Luke finishes Acts when Paul is still alive under house arrest in Rome? I think so, but here's the thing. That bumps back Acts back prior to 70. 68. Well, if you bump Acts back to 68, 67, what does that do to the Gospel of Luke? Brings it back earlier, right? Because we already saw that internal chronology. Well, well, Luke says others wrote before him, Matthew and Mark, we suppose. What does that do to Matthew and Mark? All of a sudden, we've got a good argument for the three synoptic Gospels being dated in the 60s. But again, we might ask, is that the earliest information we have about Jesus? The answer is no. And here's why. Many of the epistles, the letters from the New Testament were written earlier. Most scholars believe that Paul wrote Galatians and or 1 Thessalonians, those were probably his first letters, maybe as early as 17 to 21 years after Jesus. So around 37 to um, Sorry, 47 to 51 AD. 
So we're, now all of a sudden, we're back about two decades away from Jesus. And guess what? If you haven't read Paul, guess what he believes about Jesus? That he is the divine son of God. Because remember, our skeptic friends are trying to say that they made this up later on, a divine Jesus out here at the end of the fourth century or in one of the later councils, and at first he was just this good moral teacher. But we have Paul's epistles, 47 to 51 starting, where Jesus is already divine. And again, we ask this question, is that the earliest information we have about Jesus? And the answer is no. Now, you might be thinking, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cheat and go to the Old Testament and pull out the Messianic prophecies, and we could do that. That's another sermon for another day. But no, even in the New Testament, there is information earlier about Jesus than Paul's letters. And James might even be early because James is very, very Jewish. Lots of uh, scholars believe that James, James was very early because it reflected, he reflected the Jewish nature of the church. But scholars... And I want to point this out, not just Bible-believing scholars, even skeptical, critical scholars and moderate scholars and believing scholars have identified what they believe are pretextual creeds, confessions, hymns, and charismatic material. Those, that's orally spoken material, like that stuff that Paul was talking about to the Thessalonians, whether by word of mouth or by letter. They've, they believe we can identify these dumped into the letters as pretextual creeds, hymns that the early church sung, confessions, and uh, charismatic material. And it's all over the New Testament. There are dozens of these creeds. I have, a whole, I have a whole list provided. You might check them out later. I'll just show you one example here as we wrap it up. But here were the characteristics. Here's how the scholars are confident that these were pretextual creeds, confessions, hymns, and charismatic material. Number one, the texts will be introduced by words like deliver, confess, or believe. There's contextual dislocations and interruptions. It looks like the author's going along and all of a sudden drops one of these things in there. There's repetition, lists, sort of like bullet points. Um, they're often rhythmical and have lines of equal or similar length or structure, and that's why many of them, many scholars believe these were hymns. Like if you read Philippians 2, I think starting in verse 5, um, you can tell it sounds like a song or a, or a poem that they were, they were singing. And that means it was there before Paul wrote to Philippians. Um, the authors often use language not employed elsewhere or differently by, by, in their other books. And here is the main thing, friends. Catch this. If you draw out all of those pretextual creeds, hymns, confessions, and charismatic material, you find something very amazing you find elementary theological teaching chiefly regarding the gospel message. That is the death, burial, resurrection, exaltation, and promised return and the divinity of Jesus Christ. So guess what, friends? The earliest information we have about Jesus Christ is that his believers worshiped him like a cannonball shot out of a cannon immediately. They didn't make up a divine Jesus centuries later. They worshiped him as God from the very beginning. 
And this is multiply attested. Remember, the New Testament isn't just one book. We're talking about 27 letters, all that attest to this, this belief. And within those letters, we have all of these pretextual creeds, confessions, hymns, and charismatic material. I'm just gonna show you one today. This is probably the most prominent one. And you'll hear, you'll hear as we read this, you'll hear some of the things that I mentioned. This comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Starting in verse three, Paul writes, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. You see, Paul's already received this. This isn't something that Paul's making up. He received this. That Christ died for our sins, there it is, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, death, burial, that he was raised, there it is, resurrection, on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and to the twelve And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain till now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to Paul. That, here's the cool thing. And and my wife reminded me of this. My wife Heather down here, when she heard Alyssa Childers speak at a women's conference, uh, my my daughter was also there, uh, down in um, Nashville, uh, Lebanon, Tennessee, a couple months ago, Um, In her speech, she reminded me, this is one of these things that I studied, but I had forgotten, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's true. This pretextual creed here, even the the skeptic group known as the Jesus Seminar, if you've ever heard of them, they they were working 20, 30 years ago. They were a very skeptical group that didn't believe in the Bible. Even they recognized that this is a pretextual creed that predates Paul's letter to Corinthians, and they date it to within 18 months of Jesus. And my skeptic friends are supposed to convince me that Jesus' divinity was made up centuries later, but then I have skeptics over here telling me 18 months within Jesus, they're already worshiping? Dear friends, even if you and I have questions pertaining to the New Testament canon, the inerrancy of scripture, which I confessionally affirm I believe it wholeheartedly. Here's the sum of the matter. Material this early is unprecedented and unparalleled in the ancient world. You will not find information this close to an event or to an ancient individual, Jesus. Oh, and by the way, he's the one that claims to be God and proves it by his resurrection. We have a rock to stand on. You're not gonna find any, anything better from the ancient world. You're not gonna find more reliable information than that. And it just so happens that it's about the one who claimed to be God, died on the cross, was buried, rose from the grave, and claims to have our eternal destiny in his hands. From the first decade or two after Jesus, and for our skeptic friends who reject Jesus, This is what they're up against. Because in order to undermine Christianity, in order to undermine the gospel, you can't just say, I don't believe that God can do miracles. You have to find something earlier, more multiply attested, and more convincing than that. And when you try to do this, quite honestly, it's game over. Because there's nothing earlier than that. I I don't know where, where you are in your walk but all I know is I've been building my life 
on this for about 26 years and I haven't regretted one moment of it. God has always been faithful and, and the more I study this, the more I see how reliable the gospel of Jesus Christ is. You can, you can bank on him. So I encourage you to think about that. Wherever you are, maybe, maybe you need to dig into these things a little bit more so you can share your faith with your friends or maybe you haven't given your life to Christ yet, but, but you, you, you realize, you've seen today that this is something, this is the rock upon which you wanna build your life. Let's pray. Oh God, you are so good. And you give us so many reasons to see that you are alive and that you're working in our lives and that you've done this amazing thing through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you that you were willing to, to, to suffer the cross for our, for our brokenness and our sins. And we thank you for for the Holy Spirit who works in our lives. Lord, I pray for my friends who are here today. I pray that, um, Lord, that you will just touch our hearts and let us know that you are one, the only one worth trusting. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.